When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The radio show nerd wanting to get serious just for one little bitty minute. As we all know, it's crazy out there right now. A lot of insanity is going on. And I think many of us are tired. One thing I want to accomplish with this podcast. I want to be able to give all of you whether it be a half hour, an hour, two hours of pure escapism. I think we all deserve it. And from the feedback I've been receiving, it looks like I'm doing my job. So every time you put on this podcast, put on this podcast, I make it sound like this is an album. Ooh, I just aged myself. But anytime you listen to this podcast, I want you just to be able to sit back and enjoy yourself and forget about everything that's going on right now. Okay. Enough of this serious talk. Without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two radio programs I'm featuring tonight are, as I like to call, not well-known, but yet entertaining. The first is... The Black Chapel and followed by Murder at Midnight. Now, I discovered the Black Chapel a few months ago. This was a 15 minute horror series on the Columbia Network. That now I've read some some <clears throat> I've read that. Let me try this again. After doing my research. Some say it started in 1937, while others say it started in 1938. But I'll just say it started between 1937 and 1938, but it ended in 1939. It was hosted by voice actor Ted Osborne, who referred to himself as the hooded figure. And it's basically just 15-minute narrations. Unfortunately... Out of the 100 episodes, there are only two remaining, which I will be featuring tonight. The first called Mahogany Coffin, and the second, The Crawling Terror. Mahogany Coffin was first broadcasted on June 1st, 1939, and The Crawling Terror was first broadcasted on May 17th. 1938 so you know the drill sit back turn down the lights and listen to the black chapel oh side note the quality of these two uh, episodes aren't the best so you may need to turn up the volume now let's get on with the show Quarter of an hour until midnight. Time for us to go to the Black Chapel. Each Friday evening we come to this remote spot, a place of mystery and terror, where a gaunt-footed figure appears and sits at the keyboard of the ruined old organ, mumbling and gibbering his fantastic tales as his talon hands grip the cracks. 
does anyone know? The facts about the mahogany coffin. Yes. The mahogany coffin. Maybe you'll want one like it. Yes. Maybe you'll want your coffin to be just like it. So soft and peaceful. Just the thing for a good night's sleep. Listen. You hear the wind? It was just such a night when old Silas Digger died. With only the wind to mourn for him. Many of the town wished had great fun with Silas Digger's name. For that was what he did. He dug graves in a little cemetery on the edge of town. Silas was a good grave digger. The walls of the graves he dug were straight, and they never caved in while the funerals were going on. That's why the cemetery people had hired him, and not old Lou Higgins, the other applicant for the job. Silas was careful with his graves, but he was even more careful with his bed. Silas had worked in the graveyard so long, he wanted his bed to be more soft and comfortable than those many coffins he helped lower into the ground. So board by board, piece by piece, he built his bed, using only the finest of mahogany. Yes, heavy mahogany. It cost Silas the wages of many a grave digging just for the wood alone. But it was worth it. And it took Silas a long, long time to make his bed. He measured the boards of the foot and those of the head. They were the same length. He laid them across the frame of the bed and then joined them perfectly, completely covering the frame. The sideboards were built up high so that when he was lying in the bed, he couldn't see out. Oh, now you're beginning to see, aren't you? <laughs> yes, Silas Digger's mahogany bed was to be his coffin. Silas was badly puzzled for a while. How could he fix his bed so that the foot and headboard would close down over him when he died? Then he worked it out. With his dying movement, he would touch a little spring, and foot and headboard would close down over him, and he would be in his coffin. But what about a grave big enough to hold the coffin? He must talk to the graveyard people on the morrow. Silas bought two lots side by side in the graveyard. And when he wasn't busy digging other people's graves, he worked carefully on his own. Yes, he was digging his own grave. Finally, it was done. And now all there was to do was to die. Yes, die in his own bed and with his dying movement, turn it into his coffin. When they saw the bed folded over him, they would know. And when they started to dig in his two graveyard lots, they would find everything in readiness. For he had just laid a few thin boards over the open grave and covered them with dirt. But Silas didn't die. No, not yet. All these years, old Lou Higgins had hated Silas, hated him beyond reason. And all because Silas had gotten a job at the graveyard and the cemetery people had told Lou that he should have the job if Silas ever wanted to quit. Lou decided finally that there was only one way to make Silas give up that job. Silas would have to die. And Lou would see to it that he did. Snooping continually in the graveyard, old Lou found out that Silas owned two lots and had already dug his own grave. Yes, and it was covered with only a few thin boards and a little dirt. Ah, he had an idea. Yes, Lou had an idea. He smiled as he thought about it. Silas was lonely. So he made friends with the wind that blew in the graveyard. That's why it mourned for him the night he died. 
The wind was his friend, and he told his friend about his coffin and his grave. But Silas' figure was getting very old. He was slow in his work. And it was long after dark. He was still lifting spade after spade of dirt from a pauper's grave. Hard work. Yes, very hard. And his old bones ached. His skinny legs shivered in the cold and his feet clicked as he asked his friend the wind about the darkness. Finally, he was through. And he slowly started home when he decided he would walk by his own grave. In the darkness, his friend the wind, in a playful mood, blew just a speck of dirt in his already watery eyes. He blinked and began to chide the wind for its prank. And then he heard old Lou's voice. Silas, come over here. Help me. Help me. Silas was startled at that voice. What was Lou doing here in the graveyard? And what could be the matter with him? Silas started toward that voice. And before he knew it, he walked out onto his own grave. The thin board gave way with a shriek. Down he passed. When the cemetery people found him, he was quite dead. And his right hand was stretched out above his head, reaching, reaching for something. And it was a horrible look of determination upon his face, so horrible, that the graveyard people turned away. Standing there with them was old Lou Higgins. Oh, yes, the job was his now, and the first thing he had to do was to bury old Silas Digger. When he tried to put Silas into a little cheap pine coffin, he wouldn't fit. His outstretched hand made him too long. So Lou decided to bury Silas by standing him up in a corner of his grave and covering him with dirt. When old Lou was finished, Silas's fingers were just under the top layer of dirt on the grave. That night, about two hours after sundown, the wind began to blow. One little whirlpool of wind seemed more fierce than the rest. And it covered a long while over a certain section of the graveyard. But no one knew that it was cleaning away the dirt from Silas Digger's body. No. No one knew but the wind. Old Lou Higgins had come to Silas Digger's house to live. He marveled at the bed. It was so beautiful. So soft. So peaceful. Not at all in keeping with any of the other furniture. He wondered about it, the rich mahogany panel, the deep sideboard. And no, he wouldn't roll out of that bed. But then it was getting late and he had work to do tomorrow. It was going to be nice to sleep in such a splendid, comfortable bed. Yes, such a splendid bed. The covers were warm under old loose things. Nice and warm. The wind outside was cold. It sounded angry that swirled around the corners of the house. Then of a sudden it was quiet. There came a deadness of sound so complete that Lou could hear his own heart beating wildly in his withered breast. A paralyzing chill came over him. I see fingers of fear searched through his brain. What was that? It sounded like the front door. There must be a prank of the wind. No. Then it was again. It was the door. It was coming open. He could feel the wind as it surged through. Anxious to get inside. After the wind whirled around the lonely house, it moaned in anger. It heard something. Something on and on. And again the voice of the wind was quiet. Yes. 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 The old man heard them. Those were footsteps. Yes. Low, heavy footsteps. They scraped across the floor. Then, after the log, and came the steps. Then a crump. Now the steps came closer. A long, sickening scrape and a heavy crump. Something was coming to his bedroom door. Now no sound at all. 
The unearthly stillness that he was actually feeling. His heart was pounding wildly, choking his throat. He couldn't breathe, he couldn't see. He could only wait, wait and listen, his eyes straining out into the darkness. There, there was a sound. The doorknob was turning. Now, now the cat slid back in the lock. The old door squeaked slowly. Then came the wind. It squeezed through the tiny crack and rushed into the room. Old Lou could feel it angrily brush across his face. Now the door burst full wide with the angry wind to get in. And again, there came that silence. The wind was waiting. Old Lou Higgins, too, was waiting. Now there was nothing else. He was conscious only that his pounding heart was choking back his screen. There it was again. Closer. The revolting scrape. The bed is Another scraping sound. Closer now. And the clump. The old man could see a form in the darkness. Black as the box. In the blackness of the room. Something heavy was trying to climb over the side boards of the bed. There he felt it. It was cold and stiff and very awkward. He could see it now. Ghastly white. Feet with dirt. One arm above his head. Ah, was the corpse of Silas Digger. He found his voice as Silas fell across him. He screamed into the blackness. He screamed again and again as the dead body rolled across him. And then there was only the wind that died a deep, long time, though it was a final breath released after a job was done. For as the wind rushed out of the room, the head and the foot of the bed slipped quietly together, leaving Silas Digger safe in his mahogany coffin. Safe. With company, too. Yes. With...
They wanted to live in the country. The Schmidt accepted their price at once and moved out. With all the gay abandon of youth, Sylvia and Chandler brought their effects with them from the city and set up their housekeeping. They hired an overseer to look after the farm. Yes. Oh, they were perfectly happy in the possession of their clever new home. Nobody knows just when the strange progression of the events began. The only thing that is known is that neither of these young people at first suspected there was anything out of the ordinary about the Schmidt place. The strange sound they heard in the wall, they thought, was rest. Yes. Only their dog, Wellington, seemed greatly excited. Several times at evening, he would suddenly sit up growl fiercely at something. Something that seemed to be crossing the floor. He would follow the thing with his nose sniffing. And Sylvia and Chandler would laugh at him. One night, the dog disappeared. Another evening, Sylvia had gone to bed early. Chandler sat in his easy chair reading. The house was as still as death. His arm hung from the chair lip, and just as he was beginning to doze, he felt something strange. It didn't feel like a dog's back. It was the right distance from the floor, but it was slippery, slimy. Chandler suddenly had the idea that if he pressed his fingers into it, it would give. Like jelly. Wide awake now, he turned to look. What he saw was apparently a mass of gelatin. Moving. Moving across the floor, a horrible, terrible, crawling thing. And it was alive. Dreadfully alive. Quick as a flash, Chandler jumped up, picked up the poker and began to slash at the thing. It stretched across the floor, crawling as worms do. Little by little, it oozed through the cracks until it was gone. Chandler felt a cold sweat break out over him. What was this nameless thing? He whistled for the dog, the new dog. No answer. Where was the dog? It was then they knew the dog had disappeared. Had the crawling terror eaten the dog? Chandler said nothing to Sylvia about it at breakfast. As quickly as he could, he drove to the village. Listen, he said to the postmaster. Who were those people, the Schmidt, who lived in that house before us? Well, now, drawled the postmaster, there was a strange goings-on in that there house of yarn. I believe they was... I believe they were spiritualists. Two weeks passed, and suddenly Napoleon, Sylvia's camp, disappeared too. And then the overseer ran in to say that the chickens were going one by one. Chandler went back into the house. Look here, Sylvia. Let's get out of here quick right away. I'm tired of this place. She laughed. Why, Chandler, you look so odd. And he could only mumble and give no reason why they should leave. Chandler took to staying up late at night. Ah, but not to leave. Oh, no. He was listening, listening for that noise from the wall. And he watched the floor. And a week later again, the overseer approached Chandler, and his voice was very grave. Mr. Chandler, I'm quitting. Why? Come with me. They went to the bar. There lay Sylvia's pride of the bridal path. Her little mare, dead. The extreme.
extraordinary thing was the entire lower half of his body was gone. Good heavens, cried Chandler. And there's a lot more I've never told you about, the overseer. Chickens disappearing. Suddenly there ain't no more mice in my room. I can't stay with the embarrassment. There's something terrible, terrible wrong about this place. Chandler examined every window before he went to bed. Yes, he closed them tightly. He put rags in the cracks beneath and around the door. Darling, said Julia, are you insane? I wonder, muttered Chandler. His wife stared at him. His eyes were haggard and worried. Darling, let's get out of here. There's some terrible, awful malignant force in this house. Something, something no man knows about. Sylvia laughed. Hmm. That laugh, of which she was so faint. Oh, silly. But if that's the way you feel, we'd better get back to the city. As for me, I'm perfectly happy in this darling little place. She switched off the light. Chandler lay and stared at the ceiling. Was he indeed insane? Overseer had felt this something too, this crawling terror. No. No, he couldn't be crazy. He couldn't be. He told himself that over and over. He couldn't be. He couldn't. But still, that awareness that something terrible overhanging dominated over the house. And he couldn't stand it any longer. And he got out of bed. Softly, he opened the door so as not to wake Sylvia. Went down the hall into the kitchen. He switched on the light. He saw something slipping down the side to the flower pit. Something that clung to the wood like colorless jelly. Almost like a wave of watery foam. Chandler ran to the kitchen cabinet. Yes, there, there was the evidence. He opened the flower bin.
Then he tried to pull away, blindly he fought. Sylvia was no longer in the chair. She'd been enveloped in this nameless substance. She was gone. Like an animal, he was trapped. He fought like an animal whose paws are caught. He screamed in terror and threw her. Suddenly, he was an intense pain inside, but he knew he was free. Blindly, he ran from the house, out into the darkness, into the fields, and ran and ran and ran and ran. like a madman. His arms, they were gone. Gone at the elbow. (laughs) (laughs) You think that's a funny story? Oh, you do. Then let me tell you one that's even funnier. Yes. Let me tell you the secret of the Smith Catacombs. The secret of the Smith. The clock is about to strike the hour. It is time for the voice of the Black Chapel to recede into the void whence he came. Each evening at this hour, we come to this remote place, the Black Chapel, and listen as the hooded figure sits at the keyboard of the ruined old organ and gibbers his strange tale as his taloned hands grip the cracked keys. Listen tomorrow evening for the story of the Smith Catacombs. hope you enjoyed this little gem of the series and it's unfortunate that there's only two remaining uh, episodes I think Ted Osborne did a fantastic job as the hooded figure next we have Murder at Midnight now I featured this radio program uh, a few months ago but to recap it was a syndicated horror suspense anthology series that began on April 30th, 1946, and ended on August 11th, 1947. It was directed by Anton M. Leader, and it was hosted by Raymond Morgan. The radio play tonight is entitled Secret XR3, and it was first broadcasted on May 9th, 1946. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Secret XR3. in just a minute in The Secret of XR3.
Now, Murder at Midnight. Tales of Mystery and Terror by Radio's Masters of the Macabre. Our story by Max Ehrlich is The Secret of XR3. The Death House. A man sits in a tiny cell, his head bowed, waiting for the moment when he will pass from light to eternal shadow. The clock ticks on, but the time is not yet, not quite yet. Then footsteps sound in the corridor. The door opens. It's almost time, my son. Yes, Father, I know. Is there anything I can do? No. Still, I'm glad you've come. Father, uh, look at me. Look at me closely. Yes? I frighten you, don't I? I terrify you. No. No, my son. Nothing frightens me except the evil in men's hearts. Am I evil? I... I don't know, my son. Father, I... uh, Sit down. Let me tell you my story. And then when I've finished, perhaps you can tell me. They call me Gorgo. All my life I've been a little man, only three feet high. Perfectly normal in every way, you see, except for my height. Perhaps you saw me down at the Century Theater not so long ago, the vaudeville team of Petrov and Gorgo, acrobats supreme. Petrov was a huge, ape-like man who tossed me through the air like a rubber ball. The audience liked the act. The contrast between the big, big Petrov and the little, little Gorgo intrigued and amused them. And on the stage, I, I laughed and smiled and went through my tricks like a happy little fellow. But in the dressing room, it was different. I did not like your performance tonight, Gorgo. But, but uh, what, what was wrong with the Petrov? You were slow. You landed too heavily. You did not smile enough. But they liked this Petrov. You heard them. We got three curtain calls. We should have gotten five. Petrov, I, I did my best. My very best. Believe me. Your I... best was not good enough, little one. Perhaps you will do better tomorrow if I lock you in your room tonight without supper. That was Vladimir Petrov, a gorilla of a man and master of my body and soul. How I hated him. How many times I I wept in the silence of my room. All my life I had walked in the shadows of bigger people. See, all my life I had looked up instead of straight ahead, endured the stares of the curious and sensed the pity that was in their hearts. And that was why I used to wait in the alley near the stage door between performances because it was dark there. I loved the dark. It protected me. And hid me from those who stared and mocked. One night... I beg your pardon. You were Gorgo? Yes. Uh, my name is Dr. Mead. I saw your performance earlier tonight. I was just coming in to see you. Yes? What about? Oh, I happen to be an expert in glandular work, particularly in the function of the pituitary or growth gland. I think the results of my recent experiments will interest you. I, uh... I don't understand, Dr. Mead. Did you ever hear of XR3? XR3? No. Well, it's an extract, a uh, synthetic, I discovered about two years ago. In my experiments to date, whenever I injected it into stunted or dwarfed animals, they grew. They grew? Yes. You, you mean to normal size? Well, by using controlled doses, yes. You mean if you could do this with, with animals, then, then you could... I don't know, Gorgo. I think the time has come to try. Except for your size, you were perfectly formed. Just what I've been looking for. I came to ask you if you'd volunteer. Yes, yes. You understand, I can't guarantee a thing. I understand, and and that doesn't matter. I... Dr. Mead, you don't know what it means, even the chance. A chance to grow to normal size. Why, Uh, I... One thing, though. I must have your written permission. My permission? Yes, yes, Dr. Mead, I'll give it to you gladly. I'll do anything, anything. You speak a little hastily, do you not, uh, Gorgo? Petrov. Yes, little one. I'm sorry, Dr. Mead. I'm afraid you will have to find someone else for your experiments. Someone else? My little friend cannot act as your guinea pig without my consent. 
You see, I am Gorgo's legal guardian. And I have the papers to prove it. No, Petrov, no! No, you've got to give me this chance! Violence, little fool! As I said, I am sorry, Doctor, but... But, my dear sir, if I can make Gorgo grow to normal size... If you did, what would become of our act? It would be worthless. The people come to see Big Petrov and Little Gorgo. Do you mean to say, Mr. Petrov, that you would let your vaudeville act stand in the way? Yes. I spent years building the team of Petrov and Gorgo. Do you think I am going to let you ruin my investment now? Petrov, please, please, please let him do it. You've got Shut to. Shut up, you little fool, and get inside. Petrov! As for you, doctor, I wouldn't advise you to come around here again. <laughs> This was a blow I could not stand. Dr. Mead had opened a prison door for me and Petrov had slammed it shut again. I resolved then that come what may, I would have my chance. The very idea of the XR3 of becoming a man like other men made me drunk and gave me daring. One morning, while Petrov was away, I paid a visit to Dr. Mead at his office and begged him to try the experiment without Petrov's permission. I'm sorry, Gorgo, but I cannot. The experiment would be very delicate if anything should happen without your guardian's legal permission. No, I'll run the risk, Dr. Mead. I'll be glad to. I'm sorry, but it can't be done. I see. Dr. Mead. Yes? Just what does this XR3 look like? Well, I made it up in capsule form. Here, I have a whole bottle of the capsules in my desk drawer. As you see, they're green in color. So those are the magic capsules. Thank you for letting me see them, Doctor. Thank you very much. Late that night, I slipped out of my hotel room and down the fire escape. Keeping in the shadows, I went to Dr. Mead's office and climbed through the grilled bars in the window. It was easy for a man of my size. And when I left, I had the bottle of XR3 capsules in my pocket. Well, that was Saturday night. I took one capsule and then another. They made me ill, lightheaded. Then I fell into a deep sleep. And then a knock on the door wakened me. Uh, 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 who is it? Petro. <laughs> Why are you sleeping so late? Uh, uh... I don't feel well. Oh, my little one does not feel well. That's a pig. Please, uh, uh, Petrov, I want to sleep. Very well. Today is Sunday and there is no performance. But tomorrow, my little Gorgo, you had better be in the best of health, understand? Otherwise, I'll see that you really become sick. After he left, I fell into the deep sleep again. And then something woke me. My muscles ached as though I had been stretched on a rack. It was daylight again. It was Monday. My pajamas seemed uncomfortably tight, and I looked down, and the sleeves only reached my elbows. I stared, and my heart stopped beating. Then I remembered the XR3. Like a drunken man, I staggered over to the mirror, looked. Yes! I had grown. I had grown. My pajamas were stretched to bursting. I was growing. I was at least five feet tall. Five feet tall! It was almost time for the performance now. Petrov would be coming for me any minute. And I didn't want him to see me. Not yet. So I piled furniture against the door. And waited. Time to go to the theater. I, uh... I can't go, Petrov. Not tonight. I'm still sick. What? You little swine, do you think I'm going to postpone a performance because you're sick? Open the door. No. Petrov, no. Don't come in. Don't come in. You little fool. I'll break every bone in your body. I heard the key, and I heard it turning in the lock. The furniture against the door would only hold for a minute, and I ran to my valise, took out a straight razor, and then, like a frightened animal... Now, my 
Mary Mitchell. Gorgo. In the name of heaven, what? Yes, Petrov. I got it. I stole the XR3, and I took it. Now, you see? You idiot. Do you realize what you've done? You've ruined the act. You've ruined it, do you hear? Yes, but I'm a man now. I'm a man, not a dwarf. They won't stare at me now. They won't... No? That's what you think. If that doctor could make you grow, he can make you small again. <laughs> Smaller than ever. No, Petrov, no! Yes, Gorgo. You've grown, but not so much that I can't handle you. We're going to see him right now. Petrov, no! Let, let me alone, for heaven's sake! Oh, struggle, you! Raise him! No! Don't! I told you to leave me alone. I told you. And now it's all over. We've played our last performance together. A doomed man sitting in the death house pauses in his story, recalling the first time the clock struck 12 for murder at midnight. Continuing his story to the priest in the death house. I stayed in my hotel room another day and took two more XR3 capsules. And when I looked into the mirror that night, I was over six feet tall. That was enough. That was all I wanted. Now I would leave the hotel. They'd never know who killed Petrov. They'd be looking for Gorgo, a three-foot midget. Never suspect me. Yes, I was in the clear. I stripped Petrov, put on his clothes. They were a little tight, but they did well enough. Then I went through the lobby and into the night. The mere experience of walking was exciting, exhilarating, as though I were walking on a high fence. And nobody looked at me twice. The staring eyes were gone. I was normal, normal. First, I had to find a place to live. I passed by a boarding house with a sign, Room to Let. I rang the bell. Yeah, what is... Oh, hello. Hello. I, uh... My name is... Baker. John Baker. I, uh, saw your sign about a room. Hmm. Yeah. Or would you like to see it, big boy? If you don't mind. I don't mind a bit. Come in. Come in. <laughs> it's a lovely room. We got a nice class of people. <laughs> I'm sure you'll like it. I'm sure I will. Uh, but uh, first, Miss... Um... Devlin. Rhoda Devlin. Yeah, I... Uh, well, uh, Miss Devlin, I just wanted to say I've been living in hotels all my life, and I can't give you any references. Forget it. My mother owns the place, and... Well, we're not exactly formal. Besides, you look good to me. I do? Yeah. I... Well, I always did go for big men. Big? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. And I, uh... I've always liked pretty girls. <laughs> this was a dream come true. I was a normal man, and a normal girl was attracted to me. She was blonde and blue-eyed, and her head came up to my shoulder. A week passed. A week that was beyond my wildest dreams. I took Rhoda out, and we went everywhere. I fell in love with her. Madly in love. She was so small, so delicate, I... I, I wanted to protect her always. She had opened up a new and magic world to me, a world of light and love and laughter. And then, one night it happened. I was taking Rhoda home from the movies, and we were passing a billiard parlor. 
and there were several idlers in front of the place. They began saying things. Hey, look at the giant. Yeah. How's the weather up there, big boy? Hey, girlie, what do you got there, pipe <laughs> You wait here, Rhoda. I'll shut their mouths for them. All right. I crack the skull of the next man who opens his mouth. Please. Please, Johnny, don't bother with yeah, him. Yeah, but they're saying... I they... know, but don't mind them. Let's keep walking. No, I will Please. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you know, the big baboon? Trying to throw his weight around. <laughs> I wanted to smash their jeering faces, knock them down. But Rhoda and I walked on to her mother's boarding house. And she was strangely silent as we entered the dimly lit foyer. She hadn't said a single word since we had passed that billiard parlor. I was vaguely disturbed. I took her in my arms... But she pushed me away. No, please don't. What's the matter, I, baby? I, I, Is it what those men at the billiard parlor said? I, I don't know. It seems to me you're growing bigger. Right before my eyes. Growing bigger? Yeah. Yeah. I thought at first I was seeing things, but... Now I know it's true. I know it's crazy. It's crazy, but... When we first met, the top of my head reached your shoulders... And now? Now? Yeah? What about now? Now it doesn't reach your shoulders anymore. <gasps> You've grown bigger. Now, Rhoda, you don't know what you're saying. This is your imagination. No. No, it's true. We'd better not see each other anymore. I'm afraid of you, John. You're too big now. Good night. No, Rhoda, listen. Oh, don't no, Rhoda, me. please. Oh, let go of my arm. No, not until you hear what I have to say. Rhoda, I love you. Yeah, I love you, and I'm not going to let you just toss me aside. Jimmy, don't get big luck. Let me go. Oh, stop that. No, stop that screaming. You want to waste the whole street up. Stop it. Stop it. Stop that screaming. Stop, I say. body sagged in my arms. I'd forgotten my own strength. And in my fury, I'd strangled her. Like a man in a dream, I lowered her body gently to the floor and then turned to look at my reflection in the full-length mirror in the foyer. Yes! Yes, it was true. The pitiless mirror reflected a giant. I'd grown at least six inches. The XR3 had continued its work, was making me grow even now. Now I was a freak again. They stared at me again and pitied me. The beautiful, normal world I had so briefly enjoyed came crashing down over my ears. I ran out of the house like a wild man and into the street. Dr. Mead, yes, I had to see him at once. I ran to his office, avoiding the well-lit streets, and the light was on. I prayed that he was in. I knocked on the door. Yes, what? Good Lord. Hello, Dr. Mead. You remember me? Why, no, I can't say that I do. Look up into my face, Doctor. The features are the same you looked down upon not so long ago. Go, go, the midget. No, Dr. Mead. It's Gogo the Giant now. So it was you who stole the bottle of XR3 capsules from my desk? Yes, yes, yes. And this is the result. This and Petrov's murder. He deserved to die. It does not alter the fact that it still was murder. Dr. Maid! I'm not here to argue law with you. I want you to save me. You've got to stop this growing process. But how? What can I do? An antidote. You must have an antidote. I'm sorry, but I haven't. There just isn't any. What? No antidote? Oh, you're lying. I assure you, I'm telling the truth, Kogo. I was interested in making things grow, not making them smaller. Yeah. Then I'm lost. There's no way out. I'm sorry. 
All my life, I was a little man. I wanted to know what it was... what it was like to be a big man. Now I am big. Too big. <laughs> Isn't that amusing, doctor? <laughs> too little and then too big. <laughs> like the swing of a pendulum. <laughs> I wish I were little again. As I knew what to expect then. I was used to that. Now they'll stare at me again. They'll laugh and jeer at me. Gorgo the giant. Gorgo the giant. <laughs> I think we'd better call the police, Gorgo. Well, Father, that's... That's my story. See, that's why I'm here in the death house. Now, tell me, am I evil... No, my son. You have been unfortunate, but not evil. You have sinned, yes. But you have been sinned against, too. And, uh, they're coming for you, Gorgo. I hear. And I'm glad. Glad? Yes, glad. I don't mind dying now. This world, Father, what has it ever meant to me? But there, in the next world, there no man will be strange and all will be equal. And perhaps there I will find peace. With firm and measured trend, the man who was first too small and then too big walks down the corridor. And the iron doors along the way rattle and clang like the chiming of the clock when it first struck twelve for... Murder at midnight. to be with us again when death walks through the darkness with giant strides and the clocks strike twelve for murder at midnight. The part of Gorgo was played by Carl Swenson. With music by Charles Paul, Murder at Midnight was directed by Anton M. Leader. listening and remember you can find me on facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on instagram at radio show nerd or on 
Twitter at Radio Show Nerd One, or maybe you'd like to drop me a line just to say hi. Uh, maybe you want to request a specific episode or a particular series, and you can always email me at Radio Show Nerd at gmail.com again this is your host Keith aka you guessed it the radio show nerd signing off <laughs>